Kidlet. Hello, writers. I'm Alexis. And I'm Brittany. Thank you for joining our community, centered around growth and discovery in the world of Kidlet. Today's guest is Black feminist writer and poet Zeta Elliott. Zeta's poetry has been published in numerous anthologies, and additionally, she has written numerous essays, including the Children's Literature Association's article award-winning 2014 essay, The Trouble with Magic, Conjuring the Past in New York City Parks. Zeta has also published two middle-grade novels, one of which we are talking about today, it is Dragons in a Bag, which is a middle grade fantasy book series that the Association for Library Service to Children named a notable children's book, and it was selected for 2021's Global Read Aloud. The fifth and final book in the series, which I am excited to get to that point, <laughs> I'm still on book one, is War of the Witches has been published already in 2024. So, we are so excited to talk to you about your writing and your books. How about you kick it off with an intro and a short summary of Dragons in a Bag and yourself? Absolutely. Well, Alexis and Brittany, thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast. It's so great to be in conversation with folks who are writing and reading and loving middle grade fiction. Dragons in a Bag. Gosh, I always say I will never do another series because... It has occupied a lot of my creative energy and a lot of my imaginative space for, um, gosh, eight years now. I started the first book in 2016, and I have been writing fantasy almost since the very beginning. I started writing for kids in 2000. I was teaching a creative writing class, and I just wanted to give kids examples of books they could write, and I started, I guess, in a way, like responding to things I had read as a child, so I have a self-published middle grade fantasy series called The City Kids. And I thought <laughs> Dragons in a Bag would be book five in that series because I had had no luck with publishers. Um, but then I managed to get an agent and she loved Dragons in a Bag. And it's sort of a quirky little story about an African-American boy who is left with an unusual older woman, an elder named Ma. And Ma is on the brink of retirement, and that is why she is cranky. She wants to stop working, and they have given her one last job, which is to send three baby dragons, deliver them to the realm of magic. And Jax does not know, but soon finds out that Ma is a witch, and he agrees to be her apprentice. And he manages to get two of the dragons to Palmara, the realm of magic, but one, of course, is stolen by the dragon thief. That is book two. So the series, uh, initially, I had a two-book deal from Random House, and it was selling really well, and they dropped the series for, like, no real reason, which was frustrating, and then they picked it back up. <laughs> so three years later, books three, four, and five started coming out, and sort of the arc of the series is that Jax believes that magical creatures can and should live in the human world, and there are portals that connect the human realm and the realm of magic. But the realm of magic is sort of governed by Sis. She is the guardian. And she even disagrees with her own brother who wants to keep the doors open. And she ends up sending him into exile. He's locked in the Forgotten Tower for a thousand years, but escapes. And as soon as he gets to Jax, he starts, you know, sort of manipulating the boy and saying, don't you want to keep the doors open? Don't you want there to be this free flow of magic? Which, of course, Jax does. But what he doesn't know is that the wizard has built a bridge between the realms and that bridge is sending a signal to the scourge, which is the one ancient magical creature that has been sent to a distant galaxy because when it sees magical creatures, it absorbs their magic and leaves them turned to stone. So Jax thinks he's doing the right thing by opening the doors. He wants there to be this free exchange of humans and magical creatures. But then the bridge summons the scourge. He destroys the bridge. It doesn't matter. Now the scourge is in their world. Um, and the witches believe they have to go to war. That's book five, the war of the witches. And the children in the series now have magical powers of their own. And they believe they can find a path to peace. So that's kind of the tension in the final book. And I think it is the final book. I have had a few kids tell me, but it's a cliffhanger. I don't think it's a cliffhanger but I don't think the series is quite done with me yet. Ooh, I like <laughs> that. <laughs> you have a wide range of talents and skills as a writer. Today, we're discussing your middle grade 
fantasy, but readers may also know that you write wonderful poetry. Hmm. How did you go about cultivating such a range of writing abilities? Oh, that's an interesting question. So I didn't start out intending to write for kids. I started out uh, writing for adults. I wrote an adult novel called One Eye Open, and a whole bunch of agents were really excited about it when I sent it out, and then nothing happened. And so I kind of had a six-month period in 1999 where I stopped writing, which I had not really done in my life before. But I was teaching. I've worked with kids since I was 16. Um, and I was teaching creative writing, and I started making picture books for those kids. And I tend to write when I'm learning a new form. I write in spurts. So I wrote 20 picture books, and then I stopped, and I started to study theater. And I wrote 20 plays, and then I stopped. <laughs> And then I wrote a memoir and then I moved on to something else. Like, I think I'm, I'm just by nature a curious person. I'm interested in learning how to do new things. And poetry in general, I wrote when I was angry. So I only wrote one or two poems a year. Um, and I managed to get a couple of those angry poems published. But it was a challenge to think about how to form a collection and again, it turned out the Brooklyn Public Library asked me to do a Gwendolyn Brooks tribute workshop with some students in Brooklyn. It turned out they had never heard of Gwendolyn Brooks or any other Black women poets. So I started introducing them to some and we used them as mentor texts. So what can you learn from the poetry of Gwendolyn Brooks or Nikki Giovanni or June Jordan or Sonia Sanchez or Maya Angelou or all these other amazing women? Uh, and that gave me the idea to put, say, five mentor poems, poems I had learned from, in a collection, and that became Say Her Name. And so that was sort of my first, that was my first collection of poetry. That was my first sort of public recognition. Like, I don't identify as a poet. I would never lead with, I'm a poet, <laughs> partly because most of my close writer friends are poets, and they are so hardcore, and they just eat, sleep, and breathe poetry. And I feel that's just not my sensibility. I just, there are certain things where, you know, sometimes if you're angry or if you're upset or emotional, you can't form a coherent sentence. <laughs> like trauma tends to rupture our, our ability to express ourselves and represent our feelings. And so poetry to me was sort of a convenient, more convenient way to sort of in shorthand, get down what I was thinking and feeling. But then when I started to write a collection, I just started thinking, you know, I've never written a sonnet. Let me try to write a sonnet. I've never written, or I have written a rondo, but that was so long ago. Could I do another one? And when you look at mentor texts, you see what the form is. As I say to students, you can look at a form and think of it as the poem having an envelope and then a letter inside. And so you can borrow that poet's envelope and put your own message inside. And I find that a good way to learn because I'm not generally interested in reading, in reading or writing sonnets. But then when I saw what people were doing with the form right now, contemporary poets, it just felt really exciting. So now I have two other collections of poetry. I might do another verse novel. I'm working on kind of a hybrid. I think there are some things where I feel more comfortable writing prose because I need a level of detail and completeness that I can't always get with poetry. But then a lot of poetry I see in the kidlit arena doesn't always feel like poetry to me. It sort of feels like somebody wrote a novel and then chopped their sentences in half and called it poetry. So there are different standards for sure when it comes to poetry in Kidlet as opposed to poetry in the adult arena. But it's nice to be able to go back and forth and to kind of push push the limits of, push the conventions of what's expected uh, in, in Kidlet. It's so hard for me to imagine that you don't consider yourself as a poet Alexis and I have both read Moonwalking together. Oh, right. And I thought your poetry, both the authors, because you co-wrote it with another author, yeah, the poetry was phenomenal. Thank you. Phenomenal. Thank you. And I also really love the analogy of an envelope being the structure and putting your own message inside. I can see that being very relatable to a student who is learning poetry. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, Moonwalking mm -hmm. is actually... One of the books that Brittany and I, we were reading books and talking about them in writing terms before we started this podcast. And that's what kind of led us to this podcast. And so it was one of the books that we read and discussed. And it did to me feel like it, it did break the boundaries of poetry. I mean, it was 
still felt like poetry, but there were pages that looked different than what you typically see. And that's what I think kids, kids love that. And I do. It's a great break for your brain. Exactly. That really kind of furthers what you said about making it your own. And it doesn't have to be, you know, exactly what, what you see every day. Right. The challenge of, of co-authoring a book is that mm. Lynn, you know, is so disciplined and I think immediately had 60 or 75 poems. And I think a novel in verse should have, you know, 25 to 30 poems max. So I wrote like 25 <laughs> poems and my editor said, oh, these are wonderful. Could you write 25 more? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> but then, you know, I didn't have enough poems relative to how many Lynn had. So we were, we were storytelling in a different way. So but yeah, I feel mm -hmm. like poetry is the essence of something, of an, an experience yeah. or an idea or an emotion. And so it's not meant to have as many words. That's, again, what I, mm -hmm. I find frustrating about some novels and verse is that, you know, they're this thick mm -hmm. because it really just does feel like they wrote a 300-page novel mm -hmm. and then cut the lines in half and made it a 600-page novel and verse. But I think poetry isn't supposed to tell you everything. You know, mm -hmm. that's sort of what makes the reader work a bit is that you can create visual interest on the page with a concrete poem, but then you're also, you're leaving some things out. And that means the kids are looking for clues and trying to fill in the blanks. And I think that's the beauty of reading poetry. It is accessible. You have lots of different entry points, but you're not just, you know, spilling all the beans here, mm -hmm. you're trying to be a bit more subtle. But it had such a musicality for me when I was reading it. Mm -hmm. um, and then Lynn's poems contrasted to that, you know, you got each character so clear, you know, their whole characterization was so clear in each of those poems. So it was wonderful. And Thank so you. was Dragons in a Bag. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So moving on to Dragons in a Bag, the main character is Jax, who's an eight-year-old boy. How did you, as the writer, know that Jack should be eight and not 12 or 16 or 20? And what other craft elements were affected by this decision? So I tend to focus on eight because that was a pivotal year in my life. And a lot of things changed. My parents got divorced and I had to move to a new city, sort of just across the valley from where we've been living in a big house with a big yard. And now we were in a townhouse with a tiny yard. And I was in a school where I wasn't put into the gifted and talented program, even though I had skipped a grade. And it was just a very different and a difficult transition for me. And it just felt like adults were making all these horrible decisions. And my sister and I, we just had to deal with it and try to thrive. And I was working so hard to make my teachers see that I was gifted and talented. And they just weren't interested for the first two years. It wasn't until I got to a school, middle school, where my sister had been recognized as gifted and talented, that they began to have higher expectations for me. So I think a lot of the time I write about eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds uh, who feel a little bit invisible or underestimated, or like people aren't recognizing they have something to contribute. And so I sort of had that in my mind as that's who Jax would be. My grandparents were really important to me. So I knew he needed to have an elder in his life. I, you know, was feeling like I was about to get pushed out of Brooklyn due to gentrification. You know, Jax and his mom aren't poor. They, they're paying their rent. But what's happening with gentrification is landlords want market value. And if they can push out an existing tenant, they can raise the rent to market value, which is sometimes twice what that tenant was paying. So in order to do this, landlords, you know, turn off the power and turn off the gas and turn off the water. And so um, his mother has to go to court. When my agent sent the first book to an editor, you know, she and her, her supervisor came back to me and said, we think the beginning is too sad. And I was just like, too sad for whom? Like, who are you worried about? Because all kinds of kids are experiencing, if not homelessness, then housing insecurity. And they know exactly what this feels like. Plus, didn't Harry Potter's parents die in the first chapter? And the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is in it like the London's bombed? Like, you know, that's standard trope in Kidlet is to start with some kind of chaos or trauma or disaster. So it felt kind of sketchy to me that they wanted me to change that. And I refused. And then they were like, okay. <laughs> so, so we just went on from there. But yeah, I think that's a good age for me because it's, it's the sort of the point where a child is still vulnerable, still innocent, but they're also 
learning independence and interdependence. Their friends mean a lot to them. They do, I think, want approval and acceptance and recognition from adults, but they're also able to discern when adults aren't telling the truth or aren't entirely trustworthy or have bad judgment on their of their own. And I remember, you know, definitely feeling that way about my parents, like, what are you doing? And just being told, you know, it's not your place to tell adults what to do. <laughs> it's like, you tell me what to do. So having a bit of defiance and a bit of feistiness, but then you're also, you know, in African, in Black culture, we have home training. And so your home training generally involves don't, don't talk back to adults. And it's sort of this con where you're, you're taught to just, you know, be passive and accepting, but that's not the nature of children. Children are curious and they want to learn and they should be allowed and encouraged to ask questions. And if you don't give them the answers, they're still going to go find them. Like this whole thing with book banning. And, you know, it's as if all these book banners think the internet doesn't exist. <laughs> like, I don't know how you think you're keeping something from your kids these days, but guess what? They can find it on their own. So, And we'll get into more your kind of tougher themes in the book, but I'm glad that you stuck with it because I think that yeah, it definitely needs to be written about. And you're right. It's, it is a standard trope, even if the one that you used maybe was something they were sensitive with, I guess. Right. The first chapter of Dragons in a Bag feels to me, anyway, exactly what we talk about when we say to start a story right in the action. Tell us what you were thinking about when you wrote the first chapter. Ah, yeah, secrets. <laughs> Right, this idea that parents think kids don't know what's going on, even when kids are living through a situation. Uh, that was certainly the case in my family. You know, my parents didn't sit down and say we're getting divorced until at least a year after there had been separation and arguments and all kinds of other stuff. But for Jax, you know, he he doesn't have his father, so he's very close and protective of his mother. Uh, and she's trying to be protective of him, which means there's a breakdown in communication. The first chapter for me, it was important for readers to know that Jax had knowledge <laughs> that his mother didn't know he had and that he understood a situation. He was trying to be cooperative, right? So if his mother says, I really need you to stay with this person, he's like, okay, I don't know who this person is, but I trust you. I think a lot of fantasy for me isn't so much world building as community building. And that means relationships. And so I, I think people become invested in a story because they care about the characters and they care about the characters because they see their vulnerabilities. So we know that Jax is kind of in a precarious position, but we know he has an adult, a mother who's going to fight for him. And yeah, there's just, they're precarious. You know, the, the, one of the themes of the book really is home and belonging. And so the fact that they're at risk of losing their home um, means they're just as invested in this big uh, project of, of belonging as the magical creatures that eventually come into, into the story. And I thought a lot about this first chapter because it was impactful starting it right as she's knocking on the door. And I don't think it would have been as impactful if we had seen starting with them back at the apartment or walking towards the apartment. You know, you're right, right at that moment, right at that tension moment. What are your thoughts on starting right there? You know, I have not an obsession, but I have a fascination with doors <laughs> and I am writing a novel. I'm almost at the end, thank goodness, which is all about portals and doors and how Ma ends up being the one who can open doors into other dimensions. And, you know, as, as a writer, as a Black woman, I have knocked on so many doors that have not opened or have been slammed in my face. And so there's always that sort of moment where you hold your breath when you knock on a door, right? Like, is, is someone home? Are they going to open? And in New York City, it's not the same here in Chicago. I don't know about where you are, but in New York, you know, people have three or four locks plus a chain. <laughs> so when you knock on someone's door, even if they want to let you in, it takes a minute. Uh, and the fact that Ma, you know, turned the locks, but kept the chain on. So there's this potential, there's this other world on the other side of the door. And then there's her refusal. And so Jax has to, on the one hand, sort of win over Ma, but at the same time, he's like, you know, stop disrespecting me. Like she doesn't call me by my name. <laughs> and 
right from the start, she's trying to make herself as unpleasant as possible because she knows what she has in her apartment and she doesn't want some little boy meddling in all of it. So yeah, trying to create that that sort of tension. And then it also creates sympathy, right? Like when you look at the illustration by Geneva B, like I always, I have that in my slideshow when I talk to kids, I'm like, would you want to stay with that lady? <laughs> and they're like, no. <laughs> yeah, that that necessity of, you know, mom needs me to stay with you, but you're really unpleasant. And mama says you curse a lot. And I don't know what's going on here. I've never met you before. Nobody's ever talked about you. Just putting a lot of unknowns out there. But also, you know, when a door is open a crack, you always want to see what's on the other side. Yeah. And speaking of Geneva B, we really liked her illustrations and it made me in particular wonder who decides what scenes are illustrated and, you know, how, what was it like working with an illustrator? So I didn't really work with her. I've never met Geneva. <laughs> she did a great job. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she did the covers for the first three books. She did the interior illustrations for the first two. And then Charisse uh, Harris took over for the interiors of the last three books uh, and also did a great job. I left it generally to my editor, Diane Landolf. Uh, I would send her the manuscript. She would say, I'm looking for 20 illustrations. Here are, the, here are the scenes I've picked out. What do you think? And I would just glance over it and say, that looks fine to me. She takes it to the art director who takes it to Geneva, who comes back with sketches. I did get to see sketches and I could, you know, ask for a couple of tweaks here and there. But for the most part, uh, I was happy with the illustrations. I don't really remember reading a lot of illustrated books when I was a kid. Like, I feel like maybe because I was reading British fantasy fiction. Um, like, I think I remember like an illustrated Hobbit, <laughs> the Hobbit, mm -hmm. but the illustrations were so rare. Like you had to read a hundred pages before you got to an illustration and then it was gorgeous. But I like the idea of spot illustrations because they can be more frequent and they do sort of give kids a visual break, but they also, you know, sort of lead you deeper into the story because now you have a face to go with these characters and Geneva's character, characters have very expressive faces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like yeah. that about it, about them a lot. Yeah. Yes, they did. They were wonderful at pulling you in. When it came time for Jax's decisive moment, would he stay back or go along with Ma? He says, quote, I already got left behind once today. I don't want to be left behind again. This motivation for me, it felt really fresh and new in, in fantasy in particular. I think many times in a fantasy, the quest is to get something, to achieve something. Can you talk about his characterization and motivation? Yeah, I think um, I don't think of myself as having abandonment issues, but I think all kids have had that moment where, you know, you wanted to be with your parents and they just they left you somewhere. In my father's case, he would lose me regularly, like at the state fair. And I can remember being terrified. But again, you become resourceful and you try to figure out what's happening and you try not to blame your parent, even though they're supposed to be a bit more responsible. But in this case, you know, Jax knows his mother is doing what she has to do and he would like to be with her. <laughs> he would like to not be left with some cranky lady he's never heard of before. But um, yeah, I think that there's that tension between, between kids wanting to not rock the boat, right? To say, we're in this situation, it's already tense. I don't wanna make things worse. I could A, go to my friend's house <laughs> or B, this lady, she's kind of interesting. And she does say I have nice manners and she did recognize I know something about Africa. And, you know, he's, he's sort of weighing his options. And uh, yeah, I think, that's that is what creates dramatic tension is the the character that takes the riskier <laughs> option door number two instead of of doing what's safe because you know the safe choices don't make the best stories the the story where Jax will be tested and that's exactly what happens right he agrees to go with Ma he trusts this adult and then she sort of lets him down because <laughs> then he's sent back by himself and he's like, she, I left her with dinosaurs and she makes him climb down a cliff face. Like there are a lot of things when you're a kid, you're just like, man, do I really have to do this? There are our elders. Like I said, I was really close to my grandparents and 
you know, if they told me to do something, I didn't question it. I just did it. Especially if they, I think I believed in more in them than I did in my parents that they were asking me to do something that would benefit me in the long run, even if I couldn't see it in the moment. And I, I still ultimately felt safe. <laughs> like, I don't think Jax feels safe in the Jurassic period, but, um, you know, he's like, I'm with a witch. <laughs> like, I'm with a witch. It's okay, because I'm with a witch. And then suddenly he's not with a witch. And so again, that sense of being separated, abandoned by the person who was looking out for you, teaching you, and then he finds his grandfather, right? So again, I community building is really, really fun, I think, but also just really important because if you are in a family where the grownups can't be trusted, then you do have to look elsewhere. And for me, a lot of the times it was teachers uh, or it was my friend's parents who stepped in, my neighbors, uh, my grandparents and extended family. I, I really depended on that village to sort of get me through. We really loved the setting of your book and how you kind of took us around the city or at least that neighborhood and through different time, different times and different realms or places. What tips do you have for how to incorporate setting in such a fluid way without just info dumping, especially because, you know, speaking, this book is short, you know, yeah. 150 pages or less. And you did not just spend gobs of time describing the setting. Yeah, I think I'm I'm always conscious of pacing when I'm writing middle grade fiction. And I do often think about boy readers. And I think, mm -hmm. I don't I hate to stereotype like that, but I felt like who I was as a reader at eight. I mean, I, I read like Frances Hodgson Burnett's The Secret Garden. And then I went to the library and said, what else have you got by her? And they were like, well, she's got little Lloyd Fauntleroy, <laughs> the lost prince. And, you know, they were these thick books that smelled of mildew because they were down in the basement of the library. Uh, I don't even remember if they had illustrations, but I was a very patient reader. And it, it made me feel as though I was a worthy reader, like the book was an adversary or something. And I was going to stick with it and plow through it no matter what and stop and look up words if I had to. But I feel like so many readers today are reluctant. I taught college for 10 years. Uh, I was at a community college for the last three years. And I had students come into my literature class and say, I've, this is the first time I've ever finished a novel. I thought, how could you get to college <laughs> without finishing a novel? And it's because they were reading, you know, a Streetcar Named Desire and Catcher in the Rye and To Kill a Mockingbird, which means there are so many Coles notes and whatever, you know, shorthand. They just didn't have to do any. They didn't have to. And they could watch the movie. And But, you know, young people today, I was shocked to learn, don't read recreationally a lot of times. Even when they're reading articles online, the articles have to be very short. And I'm getting to that point where I find it hard to read long form articles online but I just knew I had to have something that was fast paced and I needed to have short chapters and the chapters needed to end in such a way that you wanted to keep reading. I love it when parents email me or teachers say, we're trying to read a chapter a day and they won't let me stop at one chapter and they just want to keep going. That's, that's fantastic. By the time you get to book three, it's a little bit longer. The book I'm writing now is, is, is almost at 40,000. So I did not intend that. I was hoping for it to be 25, but sometimes, you know, the story just just gets in the way. How did you go about plotting this novel? Did you have a certain number of books in mind when you began? I know you mentioned having two on deal at one point. What is important for a writer to remember when writing a series? It is hard work and it really takes up a lot of mental space because, you know, to write five novels, you can just, you sort of write a novel, start it over again, write a novel, start over again. And with a series, you have to think about continuity. Sometimes kids will come up and be like, my favorite part was, and they'll say something, and I don't even remember writing that. And I'm like, oh my goodness, which book was that? And sometimes it sounds wrong. I'm like, I didn't write that. And uh, yeah, so the continuity part, especially for me with menopause brain, I just, I have very little recall. And so I have to, you can see, I've got the books on my, right behind me. And I, I can sit here and be like, what happened the first time they got in the transporter? And I had to turn around and go back and look at it. So the, the short answer is no, I did not have five books plotted. 
I, I wrote the first book and they said, we would like this to be a two book deal. Could you write a sequel? And I was like already planning to, of course, because we know that Jax is missing a dragon. The dragon thief has taken it. So I knew I could write two. But then as I write, I don't do multiple drafts. So as I write, I'm writing a fairly controlled and polished narrative so like I'm, I've been working on this novel right now for months, but I've only been writing consistently for like the past three weeks. And I always write with an outline. <laughs> so I never get writer's block because I always know exactly what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and then I reprint my outline and I put a lovely little check mark every time I finish a chapter. And then I tell myself, oh, I'm like two thirds done that chapter. <laughs> I'm hoping to finish that chapter tonight. So I don't get writer's block, but I have a hard time focusing sometimes. And I don't know if that's because of computer screens or or I'm just, you know, whatever, foggy brained. But I try to get establish a routine to my day and the, the outline keeps me on track. And so once we had the first two books, I said to my agent, you know, I, I've got five books in this series. I think I could finish the whole arc in five and I didn't know, but she had already offered more books to, to Random House and they weren't interested. And because I've had to self-publish so many of my books, I just thought, well, I can, I'll just self-publish. But, uh, you know, when they finally came back, it was really easy. They were like, just give us a one paragraph summary. And I was like, okay, that's fairly easy to do. But when I started writing this novel, which is a prequel to the Dragons in a Bag series, uh, I did a fairly comprehensive outline. And just recently, an editor asked to see it, <laughs> and I was like, "Let me see what I what I wrote in that." And it is not what I not the book I've written, so I had to like change quite a few things. And I'm good with that, you know. I'm I'm okay. I I I wrote the last chapter of this novel before I had written most of it, so I always know what my destination is. And if it changes, I'm fine with that. But having something written down that's guiding me, some type of a roadmap, I find really helpful. I think what I do when I'm writing. Like I said, I try to write a very polished draft, but sometimes I just have to leave gaps <laughs> because I don't exactly know entirely what, because the book I'm writing right now is called The Oracle's Door. So I wrote the scene with the Oracle before I had, <laughs> had written the rest of the novel. And then I had to check the rest of the series to make sure that the predictions the Oracle made were consistent with what ended up, you know, like, oh, the whole timeline thing, linear time thing is, is challenging. But I think that uh, having an outline is essential for me. I always start with like 10 sentences. And I tell kids this when I'm doing a workshop. If we do that, creating complex narratives, activity, you know, then there's another sheet that is fiction elements. And they just, what's, who's your main character? Who's the villain? Who's the ally? What's the lesson that they learn? You know, that sort of thing. What's the title? What's the setting? And then I just say, flip that sheet over and write your story in 10 sentences this happens, this happens, this happens, then this happens. And, you know, we could start at the conclusion. Just tell me how your story ends and then let's work our way back. But let's have 10 sentences. And then I cut and paste each 10, each of those 10 sentences into a new document, which becomes the manuscript. And those sentences I put in parentheses and that lets me know what I'm supposed to write about in that chapter. And then I just, as I'm writing, I generally hear dialogue first and so I'll hear in the voice of a character them saying something to someone and I'll write that dialogue. Uh, and then I might find out later that that doesn't belong in chapter three, that's supposed to be in chapter eight. So I cut and paste a whole lot. Um, for this book that I'm writing now, I have interludes. So there's two voices. There's Ma as a nine-year-old girl and then there's Ma as you know a centenarian. So you have those two different voices and again, that's that's really helpful for having an outline because I could see which voice I was switching to. And when it got confusing, I just pulled out all the interludes, put them in a separate document and just finished. And now I'm just writing the novel straight. Yeah, I, I would be lost without an outline. You have a very clear plan, not even just for writing the novel, but even a clear plan for the outline itself. And is that the case for most of your writing? Yeah, definitely for moonwalking, the outline was essential because yeah. <laughs> I had, you know, like you were saying, we were trying to have very distinct voices and I had a particular narrative arc for my character. And then I had to 
I left. I let my editor sort of weave the two together. Lynn had a had a sense of how the poem should fit together, but my editor, you know, also had a different vision, uh, and that was sort of beyond me. So I didn't have that much clarity, but I knew what my character needed to say and do. And for me, writing is seventy percent dreaming. So, you know, I know my father would be like, "Nobody can get up every day and write," and I was like, "I can," <laughs> but the truth is. I don't spend that much time every day writing. A lot of the time, especially in the beginning, before the outline is written, a lot of the time is just thinking, going for a walk, being on the treadmill, just thinking, 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 how is this going to work? And the problem is once you start writing, you can't stop thinking about the book, right? And then you're waking up and then you have to get your phone out in the dark and type something so you don't forget it in the morning, because I will. So yeah, even at this point where I'm almost done with this novel, I still, I just wrote a note to myself that I I gave the kids the, the stopwatches because I remembered Ma had a stopwatch, uh, a pocket watch rather, in book one, and we never explained what the pocket watch does. So now I'm explaining it, but I haven't consistently had it go through this this novel. So I need to add some passages on that. And you just, as things come up, you remember to, to plug in the gaps but yeah, I spend a lot of time thinking and hearing the voices of my characters and understanding who's in conflict with whom. And that makes it a lot easier to write. So having a young Ma and her best friend, a young Elroy Jenkins, <laughs> who's this sort of salty little boy who wants to be a scientist. And you know, from, from the very beginning of the first time he meets this, he's getting in trouble because he wants to collect specimens and take them home and study them. And he wants to bring creatures into the human realm and he's not allowed, he breaks the rules. and yeah, it's great to have to have a clear sense of who your characters are because then you can write actions and scenes that are consistent with their character. Wow, I'm just you make me excited to write an outline. Good. Just like really <laughs> yeah. So, in terms of plotting, how did you manage Jax's clues like the lizard book and Kavita saying that pteranodon are classified as lizards? <laughs> You know, some of that, uh, some of it is intuitive and a lot of it is you go back and read your your finished draft and you're like, hey, there's a connection there. <laughs> uh, and you don't, I don't know if I do it subconsciously, but a lot of times I end up finding connections that I, I didn't deliberately write. They just sort of happen. Uh, and right now, you know, we were talking about not info dumping. Like right now I'm writing about 1919, summer of 1919 in Chicago, which was a race massacre. And, you know, I have to curate, I have to decide which facts, historical facts I want to include, not to burden the story, not to scare kids. I just started crying during one of the scenes and I was like, okay, so note to self, that's emotional. <laughs> so let's, let's see. But I, I generally in the first, the first go, I let myself write whatever I want. And then yeah. um, when I go back and read it, I can tweak some things and maybe tease out connections that are just fortuitous. Maybe, maybe I didn't plan them, but yeah, the idea that Elroy Jenkins had written this book on lizards and now, you know, he's this eight, nine, 10 year old boy who wants to be a zoologist. So keeping it all consistent, it's, it's challenging, <laughs> but it can also be, be a little fun. If your first draft I think is loose enough. So I do tend to write a polished first draft, but if it's loose enough, then you're sort of leaving doors open. And that's mm -hmm. why there's always the potential for another book, but there's always, you know, a chance to go back and and either close the door a bit or open it a, a bit wider so kids could, you know, think about different possibilities. Because I always imagine if I were teaching a book, you know, I would be asking kids to predict what happens next or why do yeah. you, think, yeah. you know, this character did that. So you always want to leave them room to sort of form their own logic instead of just having everything be sort of handed down to them. Yeah. I like that. We're back to doors again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> doors being open, doors being just, just a crack open. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That threshold, right? That, what happens when you cross a threshold? You're, exactly. are you the same person? Are you a new person in a different environment? You know, I'm someone who I'm an immigrant and I travel a lot. I come from a family of immigrants and then there's the forced migration of Africans being, and you know, in, in slave forts along the west coast of Africa, there's always a door of no return. And there's that final doorway you go through where you do become someone else. They take your name, they take your language. Uh, 
and you're, you know, you're sent to the new world. So this, this experience, a lived historical sort of remembered experience or something we've learned, I think shows up again, again in my work. In the acknowledgements, you talk about the origin of dragons in a bag and the need for Black protagonists. You created Jack and his urban setting of Brooklyn to bring more inclusivity, and you also bring up themes such as segregation and othering. How much do you feel that the publishing or children's book world has changed, and what can readers and writers alike do to keep this change moving forward? Well... We were talking a little earlier about trends in publishing. I hate to say it, but diversity and inclusion tends to be a trend in publishing uh, since the murder of George Floyd. We have had a spike in books being published that center marginalized folks. And I don't know how long that's going to last. Uh, it would be great if it was permanent, but because the actual staffing of the publishing industry hasn't changed, it's unlikely. So... You know, we just had HarperCollins editors and uh, professionals on strike last year. And one of their main issues was, you know, the company isn't walking the walk. They talk all this talk about diversity and then they publish books by people of color that get no marketing support. You know, I got no publicist for the per first two Dragon books. And so then we're selling tens of thousands of books and they drop the series <laughs> like... They have a commercially viable series. We've now sold more than half a million copies and I can't get bookmarks to go to an event this morning. Like it's absolutely ridiculous. I've never been sent on a book tour. I've never been sent to big conferences. So there it's not just about the books getting acquired because it does seem like more books are getting acquired. But do those debut authors get a second book and a third book? My publisher hasn't sold any foreign rights, so there's no Spanish language edition. The book could be selling all around the world. And, you know, people often say to me, more conservative people say, you know, well, it's publishing, it's a business. You have to prove you can make them money. It's like, but even when you do make them money, there's still all of these issues. So until there's real power sharing in publishing, you know, like, Publishing has one standard marketing plan, which is to reach white middle-class readers. So I am thankful for all the white middle-class readers who have bought Dragons in a Bag, but it means that readers in my own community don't even know the series exists. Like, it's ridiculous that I, you know, can go into schools that are majority black and brown or work with black and brown librarians and educators, and they don't know about the global read aloud. They don't know about the dragon series or talk to people who think the series ends at book two because it was dropped and the next books didn't come out for a few years. And, you know, if you have a marketing team that doesn't know how to market to readers of color, you know, when I published my first time travel novel 10 years, 12 years ago uh, with Amazon publishing, they had a promotion at Panera. And I was like, you know, I eat at Panera. That's great. But a whole lot of black people do, do not eat at Panera. Like you need another marketing plan. But if nobody on your marketing plan is a person of color, then you're not going to end up with a really good marketing strategy to reach diverse audiences. So, yeah, I think until the, the staff, industry professionals, not just editors, but marketing people and publicists, and it's, you know, I can't get an agent right now. So to have a best-selling series and not be able to get an agent. And I know an Asian American author who writes middle grade also, he's, he's a successful author and he can't get an agent. And if you can't get an agent, you can't sell your manuscripts to the big five, the corporate publishers uh, like Simon and Schuster or Harper Collins. And that means you can't get the bigger advances. So I have interest from a small press and I, you know, fingers crossed, hope that works out. If it doesn't, then I self-publish. But, you know, bookstores, most bookstores won't carry self-published books. A lot of libraries won't carry a book unless it's been reviewed. And a lot of review outlets won't review self-published books. So it's a whole system that is sort of preserving itself, <laughs> deeply invested in preserving itself. And uh, I don't know how we get around that because people want to hold on to power. If they're not willing to share power, then nothing really changes. Wow. You're a phenomenal writer and you're having mm -hmm. a struggle your relationship with self-publishing, is that at all play into that? 
I mean, I still do. I self-published five books last year. So I still self-publish. I know everyone thought when I got a deal with Random House that, oh, you won't have to self-publish anymore. (laughs) People think that there's this moment where you arrive and then things get easier. And it just isn't true. Like, yeah, I I was at an event a couple of weeks ago with other middle grade authors and they were like, yeah, we we print our own bookmarks. And, you know, I paid my way to go to this conference and that and, uh, you know, I just submitted receipts this morning for an event. Fingers crossed. I get reimbursed for that. I'm not sure I will. I self-published initially because I had to. I didn't have a choice. And I wanted my mm-hmm. books to be in the hands of kids to at least be available. And then I got to a point where, so right now I have 30 picture book manuscripts on my computer. I could go through that list of picture book manuscripts and know which ones are commercial, which ones a traditional publisher would go for, and which ones I would have to self-publish. So there are some things I don't even send out. You know, I've had three books, two books banned, one book challenged twice. And when a mother in Tennessee challenged one of my books, she said, you know, whatever happened to books about chickens? And I immediately knew I was going to self-publish a book about chickens, which I did. Chicken wonders why. And I was able to put it out very quickly and, you know, send it to that community and be like, here are your chicken books. So if I need something done quickly, I'm not going to send it to a traditional publisher because they are so slow. It's at least two years to wait. And again, what they're saying right now is we have a glut of picture books, so we can't move picture books. So please don't send us picture books. And then you look at what's being published and you just think, really, like this got published (laughs) and there's a problem with, but you know, if they, if they do acquire one black author, they want that book to win a Coretta Scott King award. And I've, I've been lucky that I've never won a Curtis Scott King Award, but my illustrators have. Uh, the illustrator of the book that was challenged, you know, she won the Caldecott Honor Award. So uh, we got a boost in sales from that. And then because the books, people tried to ban them, you know, conservative parents tried to ban them. Progressive parents were like, we want to buy more. And so I got a spike in sales. That doesn't happen to everybody whose book is banned. It can actually destroy some authors, mm-hmm. particularly LGBTQ authors. So I've been fortunate in that regard. I consider it just a really great resource. I think in terms of surviving as a writer, you have to have multiple strategies and operate on multiple fronts. And, you know, I can't just rely on royalties to live on. I have to have other income. So I do school visits and conferences and that sort of thing. Self-publishing can be expensive. Uh, I will not be doing five books this year (laughs) because that was really expensive to do five books last year. Uh, And I know that most books I self-publish won't, you know, won't sell. Uh, I did a beautiful book in set in Scotland and it's a really important historical narrative and it's probably the most beautiful book I've done, but you know, I'll be lucky if we get into double digits for sales of that book. So I'm not going to earn back, you know, the cost of what it costs to produce the book. But having said that, I'm doing a book with a friend up in Canada and we probably won't sell any copies of that. And she was like, you know what, then don't pay me. So for the first time, I am not paying my illustrator because she is my friend. Um, She's also a marketing strategist. So maybe she's going to find a way to get the book out into the world. But I generally assume when I self-publish that it's, it's for my own edification. It's my own sort of act of resistance. Like, yeah, look at my body of work, my 45 books and say, two thirds are self-published and these are the books that publishers said no to. And, you know, I, okay. So two things I wanted to say, the first was about the book banning. And I'm glad that you brought that up again, because that was where I was going in my mind when we were talking about the publishing industry and how I'm afraid book banning is going to help keep it from, keep it stagnant, keep it from being more diverse because the world is, Certain communities are fighting back. The world is not fighting back. The majority of us are fully supportive of all books. So that's my fear is that we're not going to keep moving forward if we keep having this fear of money and and being sued or teachers being sued for having these books, which is scary and or censoring, you know, we the libraries just don't even purchase the books so they don't get any pushback. Another thing, too, you brought up the self-publishing and I, I wish that would kind of take off and maybe one day it will where libraries are more apt to look at self-published books or if there's a way that they can get into the reviews or get into the magazines that they can purchase because our world has become more 
self-published in a lot of ways. So why yeah. not books? You know, I wish maybe that'll work. And then we yeah. can- the problem right now is that the review outlets that do look at self-published books charge. So oh. when I publish a book, traditionally, my publisher sends it to Kirkus and Kirkus reviews it. But if I'm self-published, I have to pay $500. So mm-hmm. it ends up being people who have money and can afford to get a review. And that doesn't get you a good review. That just gets you a review. But again, libraries would have to change their policy, right? They'd have to say, mm-hmm. we aren't going to require a review in order or we're going to have our own review team. And then what they say mm-hmm. is there are too many self-published books and most of them are terrible and we don't know how to find the good ones. Could you help us? And I'm like, I don't review. Like you can't ask me on top of everything else I'm doing to start running a review outlet. So we've talked about it a lot around who's going to, who's going to be the one to sort of weed through the thousands of self-published books and find the ones that are fantastic. But the truth is somebody already weeds through the thousands of traditionally published books that are fairly mediocre to find the good ones. If you're a reviewer, it should be your job to go look for the really good books. I have found that if you self-publish, you at least give your book a chance to end up in the right hands so that I published Milo's Museum, I think in 2016, 2017. And that has become my top grossing self-published book. And it got adopted by a number of education professors. So there's an education professor, I think, at Penn, who is starting a a reading program where all kids get five books, either at birth or when they start school. And she's hoping to scale up across the country. So she was like, we're going to be using this book across the country. And I just was in Columbus and a professor there had brought the book into the school And it teaches kids how to make their own museum and have a conversation about institutional racism. So uh, if I hadn't self-published that book, none of the things that are happening would be possible. The Great Stories Club of the ALA, they're using one of my self-published young adult novels. So I I do recommend it. And I just joined SCBWI. I think I joined in 2000 and now I have joined for the second time. And they have all these resources for self-published authors. The Authors Guild had an article in their newsletter on self-publishing. So I think it's become recognized that, you know, the overwhelming majority of people who have a story to tell recognize they're going to have to consider self-publishing or they may never get their book into the world. We talked a little bit about the characters and we loved all of your characters and they each had such a unique role in the story if one of your characters would have a spinoff series, which would it be and why? Ma. <laughs> yeah. And the she Ma, has one, right? She does. She is the star of the Oracle's Door. You know, there are sometimes there are cultural differences that I don't recognize might influence how kids read the book. And so in my mind, Ma is cranky, but I don't think of her as mean. And I've had so many kids say, why is Ma so mean? <laughs> And I just think, you know, well, she's been through a lot. You know, when you when you get to be a certain age and you want to retire and people won't let you retire. And I just thought, you know, Ma has no eyebrows. Why doesn't Ma have any eyebrows? And I'm like, well, she lost them in a fire. When was there a fire? And then I'm, you know, I did my dissertation on racial violence, race riots and massacres and lynching. So uh, it wasn't too hard to think about Chicago in 1919. And then you have fire breathing dragons. So we have rioters and then we have dragons and we have Ma in the mix, um, you know, trying to decide if she can hide from this in the realm of magic. And when Sis says, no, you can't hide from it, she brings Sis into the world to sort of confront all of these uh, inequities. So it's going to be interesting to see how it ends. And it's been interesting to see the response of these. I had two editors who are, in, who are looking at it and just, uh, you know, the hook for them seems to be that it's about 1919. So that's that's pretty interesting to me. There was a, a nonfiction book about 1919 that did win the Coretta Scott King Award, I think a year or two ago. So maybe it's fresh in people's minds. But yeah, Ma, I think trying to understand how somebody goes through, you know, childhood trauma and then how that shapes who they become. And uh, again, that idea for me, being a witch is someone who serves their community. So Ma has to heal herself in order to help serve her community. And magic isn't the escape. I don't think that's how we should look at fantasy fiction. It's great if you want to read about a world that's completely different from your own. I don't have a problem with that. Palmyra, you know, for me, is not entirely different from the human world. It's 
you know, based on Madagascar, it's based on an actual place. And then there's the city, there's where I live. I write about my community. So it's always easy uh, to figure out where to write because I walk, <clears throat> I don't have a car. I walk a lot. I walk around my community. There's a garden of the Phoenix. Before I even moved to Chicago, I knew the garden of the Phoenix was going to be in the book with the Phoenix. And, you know, I only use 10, 10 to 15% of all the research I do, but you just need enough to balance uh, reality and fantasy. I don't ever want kids to stop thinking about reality because this is the world we do live in. And fantasy magic is really just about power. And I, I want young readers to know that they have the power to shape their reality and to shape their community into something better than it is. Oh my goodness. I can't wait for Ma's story. It sounds <laughs> like it's going to be great too. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I wish I, I could finish it this weekend. Yeah. Huh. Read to Write Kidlet is all about growth. What strategies do you use when you read as a writer? Strategies do I use when I read? I wish I didn't edit <laughs> when I'm reading. But if I don't like a book or if something isn't working for me, I don't read with a pen anymore. That used to be the big thing when I was a professor or in graduate school. Because if you know you're going to write about a book, you have to be taking notes. So I don't take notes, but I am making mental notes about what does and does not work for me. I think probably what I focus on most is pacing. And I think I'm not a fan of extended descriptions of things. I think it helps that I teach so that I'm a better writer when I'm teaching and I'm a better teacher when I'm writing. And I usually teach kids to focus on three distinguishing features, right? Describe this setting with three things. Describe that person with three things. What three things, three things make them jump out? So when I end up in a book that's got you know very lengthy descriptions, I, I loved that when I was a teenager or a kid uh, reading Dickens or whatever, or, or Tolkien. But I think for the way our brains are wired right now, you need, to, you need to be considerate of your reader. And I think sometimes I read books that feel a little self-indulgent and I understand how that happens because I let myself write whatever I want on the first go. But then, you know, I often I'll go back and read it out loud. And that's when you really notice it lagging, because if you have to read that to a group of wriggling, you know, seven or eight year olds, you're going to be in trouble. So, yeah, I try not to be too self-indulgent and I can see that in other writers and I I want to avoid that myself. So I think I learn from other writers mistakes, but also when I see them doing really clever things with pacing, then I just think. You know, that's what that's what I should aim for. I love short books. When I see a short book that really, you know, packs a punch, I just have so much respect for that. And uh, it's hard to pitch that to an industry that wants books to look a certain way. But not all stories need to to be as long. You know, the story, if it's complete, then it's done. What did you learn from writing Dragons in a Bag? And what craft lesson will you take with you into your next book? Gosh, don't write a series. <laughs> as much as I love leaving those open doors, stop it, Zeta. Just close the darn door and let it be complete. I have a novel, a young adult novel that I started before the pandemic, and I'm hoping to finish that this spring. And it is not, it doesn't have a sequel. It doesn't, it's just, it's a one-off. And I am looking forward to writing a one-off and, uh, yeah, sort of putting, curbing my imagination in a way. Like, you know, every story could just keep going. But at some point you have to stop. You have to say, this is now, I've said what I needed to say. My characters have learned what they needed to learn. Uh, I have an unfinished trilogy <laughs> that people, every once in a while, someone will email me like, how come you didn't write the third book? I'm like, yeah, I have to go to Panama. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You know, um, I don't like having unfinished projects. So I'm trying to get through some things this year so I can move on. I have a long, long list of projects I'd like to get to. So the Dragon series taught me just how much space and time a series demands. But it's also, you know, I've, I've had friends and I've watched Jackson, his friends grow up and they they feel like family. So it is it is hard to let go of characters when you love them. I can see that being like 
I could I could tell a thousand more stories with these people. Absolutely. <laughs> You've spoken about many books that you have coming up. Is there anything else that is on the horizon for you? So I had a picture book that was supposed to come out last year, a song for Juneteenth. And sadly, the illustrator was arrested and charged with something serious. And so I'm lucky the book wasn't canceled, but we uh we I they asked me who I would like to replace him. And I had initially requested Noah Denman, who did a place inside of me. And so she, since winning the Caldecott, has been booked solid. So that book won't come out until 2026. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that because I love love her artwork. And, you know, without an agent, I haven't sold anything for the past two years. So I don't have any forthcoming projects. Uh, I, I do want to self-publish a book this year called The Witch of the Woods. It's kind of an en environmental theme book. Uh, and I haven't found an illustrator yet. So when I find an illustrator, hopefully I can get that book out um, before the summer. It's kind of a cool Halloween-ish type book because it's got this witch, but um, I hope to get that out this year. Yeah, that's it for now. Very cool. Well, we can't wait. Thank you, Zeta, for being here today. We greatly enjoy talking with you. If you are an aspiring middle grade writer and would like to join our book club, please find us on our Substack linked below. Thank you for listening. Join our community on Substack linked below. 